Good afternoon. My name is uh, Dan Albrick. I'm with Leopardo. I'm uh, program's co-chair along with Jeanette, who is walking across the room waving from OFS. Thanks for coming out today. Uh, today's program, um, a year in retrospect. We really had a lot of fun putting this one together, trying to figure out a title, you know, kind of the subtitle, so to speak, we called. So some of the names that we came up were seriously or really, or perhaps you've got to be kidding. And then uh, another one was, ooh, that's going to leave a mark. So we had some fun with this. And my favorite of all was, yes, we actually found speakers that will talk about it. <laughs> Before we get into this, though, uh, just one announcement. Uh, as Stephanie had mentioned, this is our last program for 2009. And as we always do in January, we will kick it off with our annual economic forecast. And that will be Thursday, January 14th. And our speakers, again, will be from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. And that will be uh, Rick Mattoon and Scott Brave. So today's program, Year in Retrospect, with all the titles I had mentioned, uh, we want to also look at um, all the different things that we accomplished in 2009 from the you know, managing change, location as a business strategy, the stimulus, sustainability, kind of the new innovations we, can, we may be able to touch upon throughout this presentation. We had a great year. We appreciate those that have come out and support us throughout the year. Um, Resumes um, are all on the tables for everybody. I'm going to just kind of briefly announce our uh, moderator and speakers. But um, take a look at those. There's a, a very detailed resumes. If I read through everything, that could be our entire program. Um, our moderator today um, is uh, Steve Stoner. He is managing director of Duff and Phelps. Uh, he joined uh, recently in 2009 and is managing director of the Chicago office and part of the fixed asset and real estate practice. Okay, I like that, one at a time. And then our speakers, we have Rick Shuham. He's Executive Vice President, Director, and Branch Manager for Studley. He joined Studley in 91 and has been uh, co-branch manager of the, sh uh, the firm's Chicago office since 97. Rick's here? All right. We're just musical chairs here. Next we have Chris Carroll, Managing Director and Partner of Cohen Financial. He's responsible for running Cohen Financial's Capital Markets Office in Chicago, Tampa, and Florida. And last but not least, we have Bill Rolander. He's principal of the John Buck Company. He joined John Buck in 95 as vice president and senior leasing and broker, and in February 2004 was promoted to principal of the firm and focuses on office leasing within John Buck's management group and new office developments. A round of applause for our moderator and speakers. Remember, today's uh, presentation is being podcast, so if you have any questions, please raise your hand. We will bring the microphone. We want to get your questions. We want to get the answers recorded forever. Thank you. Okay. Am I on? Okay. Well, I appreciate everybody coming. Uh, I've got a great distinguished group of panelists here today and looking forward to hearing what they have to say. Uh, our format today is going to be, each one of them is going to give a five minute overview, five to ten minutes uh, overview of what their experience has been like over the last year. Uh, we're defining the beginning of the, beginning of the downturn as third quarter of 2008, so you get an extra bonus of a quarter uh, of a year. And uh, after they're done with that part of it, uh, we will go into uh, a moderate session. Uh, I, I think it's okay if the audience wants to ask questions once we get through the initial presentations. Uh, somebody with a mic will be walking around and uh, just to keep things flowing it might be easier if you raise your hand and uh, she'll get to you with the mic and, and please wait until the mic is there before you, you start talking. Uh, and then, uh, so after the first 15 minutes, feel free to pipe in, respond to anything any of the panelists have said, and uh, we'll go from there. So we're going to start off with Rick. Um, Can you hear me okay, everybody? So uh, in preparation for this, what I uh, wanted to do was go back and literally try and remember what happened this year because it felt like it, it, we're all living dog years right now. It felt like seven all in one. And I went back to my outlook and I started going back. Uh, I actually started my look back uh, in the uh, fourth quarter of 08. And I kind of went through each of the meetings, each of the internal and external events that occurred, some public 
things that everybody knows about. And then I went to another guy in my office and did the same thing and went through his calendar and tried to make sure that I wasn't you know, living in my own alternative universe. And there was a lot of consistency in terms of, of, of the things that stood out for us. So um, what I'll do is I'll take you through it. I'm not heavy on statistics in this. This is much more about kind of the momentum, you know, the emotional, you know, the less specific. I'll, I'll give you a couple of stats when I'm done. Bill, I think, has a, a few more stats for you. So um, you know how to use this thing? Because I didn't even, I wasn't trained in the, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers where this quote came from, but I, I, I think it was a Coors commercial with one of the NFL coaches. We're not where we are. We're not where we wish we were. Um, so in the fourth quarter of 2008, unemployment stood at 7.2%. Uh, that from the tenant rep and the corp a lot of the corporate side uh, began the sound of screeching brakes, and that's a sound that we've heard for almost you know, 10, 12 months now. Lehman implodes. Uh, the financial, media, consumer goods companies freeze. Real, real estate projects across a broad spectrum just simply stop. Uh, pharma, healthcare, and education seem to be moving along as if you know, nothing ever happened. And we start to hear the law firm squirming, uh, although we're not seeing a lot of action yet. Uh, from the broker's perspective, the deal flow is drying up. Uh, leasing velocities are, are, are drastically down. Uh, and we, uh, we can't really have a lot of conversations with our clients and prospects because they're too shell-shocked to even talk about it. Uh, sorry, Steph. Uh, Motor Coach and Tribune both filed Chapter 11. You'll see this theme continue throughout this, uh, this very brief six-slide uh, presentation. Can you roll to the next one for me? Thank you. So Q1 of 2009, unemployment's at 7.6%. Downtown vacancy is now up to 14.4%. Suburban's above 20. Uh, suburbs have been uh, hurting for a while, but uh, you know, it, it, it just seems to hover around there, and we'll talk a little bit about where that goes. Uh, now begins for the brokers the massive analysis process of the what-if scenarios. What if I survive? What if we don't survive? What if we survive when we're this size? What if we survive when we're that size? Our analysts are working ridiculous amounts of hours, all of this leads to a lot of scenario planning, but you know, clearly no action yet. Uh, if, I get, if I have my, my number correct, the Dow Jones bottoms at 65.47, uh, briefly, didn't close there, but it touched there. That was 54% lower than the high not too long ago. Consumers are freaked. Now the media, consumer goods, and travel businesses are all in a free fall. We start to see the sublease space hit in the market in larger chunks. And we now begin to see, if you didn't get a deal done in 2008, chances are it's going to blow up in the first quarter of 2009. And we did happen to see a lot of things come unraveled. Uh, some of them were very public. Some of them were not. Credit's in a deep freeze. We now have a, a dynamic shift. The landlords, many of the landlords, are now more scared than the tenants, uh, which will bring on a new uh, element to our work, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, law firms are now laying off partners, all different sized law firms. New hires are being deferred. Starting comp is being reduced. Uh, Nonprofits are now starting to get hit, uh, trying to make adjustments. And we have Sun-Times, Marisant, Smurf at Stone, Midway Games, and Pliant uh, filing for bankruptcy. And I'm pointing to these bankruptcies that are more locally focused, and, and most of what I'm talking about is really for metropolitan Chicago. So on to the second quarter of 2009. Unemployment at 8.9%. Downtown vacancy at 15.5%. Suburbs just about 22. General growth and Hartmarks file. General Motors uh, and Opus South file. I mentioned those last two simply because one is a material, uh, the, the non-Chicago ones are you know, impactful to us here in Chicago in some way, shape, or form. The good news is the federal government business is booming. Uh, the regulatory agencies are funded. Uh, and what's that? Oh, I'm sorry, I thought somebody asked a question. Uh, the private equity guys have time on their hands for the first time. Now they're going through their portfolio companies. How are they, they going to wring out costs? So they're, they're starting to look at, at, at what they can do now that they're not doing any deals. Uh, deal flow continues to be sluggish. Short-term solutions are rampant. Uh, we're advising, most of our competitors are advising our clients to just sit and let the market come to you. Uh, and, of course, that, as we now know, is, is what happened. 
Uh, tenants are now scrutinizing the financial health of the landlords uh, as much as the landlords are scrutinizing the tenants. And we're now starting, uh, I don't know if everybody remembers the great Chicago flood and what happened uh, to cessation of services clauses and leases. They went from you know, four lines to four pages. Now we're, now we're in the process of, uh, of, of turning the tables on the landlords and making sure that we have real firm remedies and we're creating all kinds of new fun stuff for that. <laughs> Bill can talk about how much he likes that in a moment. Uh, in the second quarter, we start to see the suburban landlords, the large suburban landlords start to capitulate to a certain degree. Uh, you know, the big operators start dropping rents, uh, some as much as 40%. Concessions will continue to rise though, so net effective rents are pancaking and the deals are getting real good in the suburbs. Uh, Heinz pulls the plug, at least as far as I can tell, it was in, in this quarter. Uh, you know, those deals unwind, that was just, uh, you know, a real public display of the mismatch of, of debt and equity and just how disjointed everything was. You know, who would have thought a building that was, that was anchored could blow up? But, you know, it did. So, uh, that's, that's that. Things get really interesting in the summer, in the third quarter of 2009. I shot a 79 for the first time ever, below 80. <laughs> my family could not have cared less. <laughs> I took the first three-week vacation of my life. They applauded. While I was on vacation, they asked me if I still had a job. <laughs> I told them I'm a bankruptcy consultant now, but I'm working. Uh, back to work, you know, as much fun as that was for the brief pause, uh, I truly hope uh, I don't do that again, <laughs> except for the golf thing. Now back to the real stuff. Unemployment at 9.4%, downtown vacancy at 16.4%, suburban at 22 and a little bit of change. Uh, we start to see the engineering firms percolating, stimulus money starting to hit the system. Retail brokers are falling out of the trees and the investment guys are catatonic, but they have found a new job, pitching tenant rep business. There's not a tenant rep assignment of substance that's being pitched without a capital markets guy. So, you know, we can get them out of their stupor periodically. Uh, we continue to do incredible amounts of analysis, incredible amounts of scenarios uh, being considered, yet, you know, still not a lot of action. Uh, Duke said, that, I can't remember, I think it was, maybe it was Queenan, I can't remember who it was, but uh, not Queenan, um, Schnur. The worst lease renewal is better for us than the best new deal. They're telling everybody, you know, nothing makes sense for us on these new deals. The concessions are so high, we can't make any sense out of it. So I thought that was an interesting quote. Government and bankruptcy and pharma, healthcare, education still on fire. So there's still something to do. Fourth quarter year to date. Here's where we are right now. Unemployment at 10.2, downtown vacancy at 17%, suburban at 22.7. The survivors are dusting themselves off. They're saying, I'm here, my business is still here. Uh, maybe I ought to really start thinking about putting some of these plans into place. Uh, markets everywhere have, have softened dramatically. Net effective rents in the CBD, CBD are down substantially. Concessions top you know, $110 in certain cases. And organizations that have some visibility into the future are now starting to, starting to actually uh, put one foot in front of the other and start marching towards doing something with the opportunity that they've been presented. Tenants are now looking at ownership uh, because in a lot of cases they're stronger than the landlords underneath them. Uh, there's a big anticipation of big foreclosures. You guys can talk a little bit more about that. Uh, and, and, you know, the opportunities are exceptional for, for tenants. Uh, they're exceptional for investors as well. And I will turn it over to the guys that know more about that than I do. Uh, uh, before we move on, Rick, uh Mostly depressing. You had a 15-second. You didn't think the finish at the end bottom. Was it didn't quite catch up to where you started. Uh -huh. But um, it looks like to me the stats are still trending against us. Uh, the, the unemployment and the, the occupancy rates that you you showed on each slide. Yeah. Uh, when do you think that gets reversed? When do we start going the other way? You know, that's such a hard question to answer, and, and I think you know there are others that can answer that better. We don't see signs of improving employment. You know, we don't we don't see people hiring. Uh, you know, our our the, the clients of ours that are hiring are those that are focused in the bankruptcy work. Uh, law firms that are focused on bankruptcy. You know. It's, it's, you know, that's where people are busy and fill in slots. We're not seeing, and even healthcare and pharma are slowing now, as you, know, you might suspect. So I, I, it's really hard to predict. Uh, the trend of uh, net effective rents 
declining in both suburban and downtown continues. That's not, we're, we're not at the bottom yet, but we are where we are. Okay. So Bill, are you planning some new buildings in the loop soon? Not anytime soon. But you'd be surprised, there are some large tenants, and when they get to a certain size, they really don't have any options. If they're a you know, high-rise user, Class A, there are very few options in that environment. And if you have a lease expiration that's out there three to five years, you might not be able to predict an alternative. So surprisingly, there are some large ones that are still talking. So those developers with sites are still interviewing and obviously trying to figure out how to get it financed. Right, you can. Um, I'll take two minutes and uh, just start in. Uh, I would just make a comment. I think I probably agree with about 90% of where, what Rick had said. Uh, a few things, though. I don't think it's actually as doom as gloom as, uh, as it is on the ownership side as maybe portrayed in the marketplace just because of the capital markets. But I'll, I'll try to hit upon that briefly. Um, I thought I'd just do a two-second infomercial about us right at the moment. A lot of you know we've been around for about 29 years now. Uh, we've developed a little bit of space, 35 million square feet, uh, raised quite a bit of capital and done quite a bit of deals in our time. Uh, one thing that is different for us in the fall of, or, or the end of 2008, uh, we sold a 25% interest roughly to Mubadala, which is the Abu Dhabi-based uh, operating company for their, uh, for their government. And uh, our, our John Buck International was formed in that time period. Really what we're doing over there is uh, we're, we're growing. Uh, that's one area that we are adding people uh, significantly. It's a lot of action there. We're over 230 people today, primarily project managers, people from all over the world, but we're really doing development services, facilities management there now is coming up, and then also some consulting services for them. And uh, our, our objective now is to raise a fund because we want to be in a position to take advantage of the opportunities that really Rick alluded to before on the property side with things coming up. But uh, what I'd like to do is just kind of hit upon a couple things in the marketplace, which Rick talked about graphically. And uh, the one thing that, uh, you know, is obviously on everybody's minds right now is negative absorption. Obviously, there's more space coming back to us uh, every single solitary quarter. Uh, just this year alone downtown, we've had 2 million negative. Our numbers may be a little different from others, but for the most part, that's the direction that is happening. But I would say that, uh, you know, really the vacancy is not as bad as it was you know, really right after the dot-com period. You saw four years in a row of negative absorption. You saw rising vacancies, rising subleasing space with little new construction. You know, really we haven't added, this time really the fundamentals are not really related to the developers. I think they're more related to just general slack and demand, you know, kind of globally. So, you know, again, we think new construction's probably going to be non-existent, but there is the opportunity there, you know, to see some um, new construction with the right tenants that need space and have to have it and don't have a good option. But uh, the big thing that Rick again alluded to was the fact that a lot of buildings are really upside down and uh, you know we'll hear from that later probably a little bit and that basically means is that you know the equity has been washed out of the buildings, the debt is probably uh, larger than the value of the building and you're seeing buildings which we are kind of starting to call in our offices zombie buildings. Essentially, they're out there, they're marketing, but they really don't have the capital. They're really not trying to do deals. They're really not in a position to reposition their building and go for the next forward. And so uh, we think that the horizon is in 2010, late 10 and 11, that some of those opportunities should come to fruition. But, you know, it's, it's, it, it hasn't really happened yet. As everybody knows, there's only been one office building sale in downtown Chicago this year, and it just happened last month. And so it's a very unique environment. The, the, the deals just aren't there yet. My next slide really, again, just, you know, trending, just shows you directionally where we're headed. You know, we have vacancy topping out around 16% now. We definitely think it's going to send, continue to go in that direction, uh, possibly as high as 18 19% downtown in the next couple of years. Uh, but again, we're just approaching those numbers that were higher just three or four years ago. So, uh, you know, it's, it's again, not as scary as it has been at one point in time, and we recovered very, very rapidly before. The one thing worth noting is also sublease space, you know, historically has been around 2% downtown in Chicago. So it's kind of a, we're almost at a level that is structural into our, our, our large size of our market. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that while it's there and still increasing a little bit, it's really not the overall problem right at the moment. The problem is just really tenant demand 
all together. But Bill, don't you think there's a lot of space, shadow space that's not officially Absolutely. in that statistic? And how much bigger do you think it is in that 2%? Well, it's hard to figure. I would at least maybe peg another percentage point on it for sure. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the fact is the matter. Every company's got excess space that I'm aware of in their headquarters that they own and in the space that they lease in the market. And, you know, most every building that you walk and tour, you can see existing tenants and they all got empty desks. You know, there's a, an exception to the rule when people are full and growing today. But, you know, it's going to take a long time with the job growth to come back on a positive swing. We typically lag who knows, six months to 18 months before you start seeing job growth and then obviously that trickle down into expansion and office space. This time's a little different in that, uh, you know, literally the corporate headquarters got to grow. Uh, the lease space that they're committed to has to grow before they're going to come out and, you know, take down more bricks and mortar. Every tenant we meet with all says, we're, we're growing, we're doing good, but we're not going to do it with leasing more space. We're going to try to put more in the same envelope. So, yeah, the, the, and by the way, our, our vacancy numbers include sublease space. So right. if, you're, if you looked at his statistics and mine, ours are different generally by that, by that amount of space. And just to add, there right. will be more space coming because when layoffs occur, they don't all happen on the fourth floor That's of right. a 12-story building. They happen a little on 4, 10, 12, and people are delaying spending the capital and taking the write-offs to optimize those spaces to get that space out there. So we've seen big chunks of sublease space. But there's a lot more out there that once, once the write-offs are, are acceptable and digestible and the capital can be spent to compress, then we're going to see more. Well, both of you have mentioned that tenants are focused on reducing costs. Uh, one obvious way to do that is to get rid of your surplus space, but there's no market for it. Uh, when all your analysts are working 24 hours a day analyzing stuff, what, what are they doing? What, what can tenants do in today's market to reduce costs other than leasing space? But there's no market for it. Yeah. Well, there's a whole host of, uh, of routes that, that you can take. You know, there's certainly the old-fashioned blend and extend. If you've got a landlord that's cooperative, that's certainly you know, one route. Uh, in certain spot cases, you can sublease space. It's a tough, tough road to hoe, but it, you know, in certain cases, it works. In certain cases, depending on how much of the building you occupy, you may have a landlord that you know is handing those keys back. And, and you can't, there's a whole lot of fat in occupancy costs that was created over the last five years. And if you're a credit tenant, if you're an investment grade tenant, or even just below that, in a lot of cases, you can, you can take the guy below you out and compress those costs. And we're, we're looking at a lot of opportunities in that area. This chart here will, you know, make you blurry trying to read it. There's a lot of numbers up here, but, you know, we try to drill down to all the property types. I think that you know, across the board, more space is coming on just in every building, uh, every quarter to quarter. So it, it, it is, a, it is a, a roughening environment. I did want to take a quick snapshot, though, since we thought we had a little bit of a retrospective look here. This particular um, sheet really kind of shows some summary of what we call Class A+, plus, which are really the brand new buildings, Class A and Class B buildings. It goes back roughly four or five years of history, and it's really just the database that we've tracked. Certainly not necessarily a, a, the greatest sample size in the world, but certainly deals that we've tracked and that we believe are accurate and we've got really good hard data on. And a couple things that I think just to note really from 2008 to 2009, um, when you take a look at the acronym NER on the very top is really net effective rate. But the one thing that I just like to point out on here is what you're seeing is uh, directionally the same. And these are basically all new deals that we took a look at. Uh, you're seeing terms being shorter. Uh, actually, I take that back. There are renewals in some of these uh, databases as well. But from year to year, people are definitely shortening their horizon. Uh, I did not include this in this presentation, but we did a study of about the last 250,000 square feet of deals. Uh, and really, we found an average term under 10 years, which suggests that the majority of these are all renewals. And uh, you know, people are really taking a shorter term outlook in this environment. The other thing that you'll see that's coming down a little bit is the capital. Uh, TI allowances. I mean, they're nest while they're out there and getting bigger, capital has been the biggest restraint for the tenant to make a relocation. Obviously, in addition to what the landlord provides the tenant, there's a great deal of expense that goes into furniture, moving costs, new cabling, new hardware. Usually the tenants take an opportunity to upgrade phone systems, et cetera, that they have to. So the number that you know people report on 
as getting a TI allowance from the landlord is often maybe half of what it really costs or less than half to get the job done. And that's been the physical, and me, the biggest thing to see new tenants to move. It's just the cost of capital to go out. Anybody, any tenant sitting there has to go back to their corporate office and ask for money to make a relocation. The question is, hey, can you really operate by renovating? Can you operate in a smaller envelope? That's the message. So we've seen that almost across the board. Tenants, if you will, kick the can down the road for the next generation of leases, signing three-year leases, five-year leases, just to try to buy a little bit of time. So it's, uh, that's clearly just the direction that we see things headed. And obviously, uh, being a landlord that owns buildings and builds buildings, it's going to be hard for us to make a good sale with cost of capital today to really try to get people to move into a new asset. Those tenants will do. We have a good deep market, so we feel confident that that will still occur uh, in the right situations. I'm going to try to switch real quick because I'm probably running through time here a little bit just to talk a little bit about the burbs and whatever you've heard about downtown Chicago being negative, the burbs are probably doubly as bad. The story is really pretty ugly. Um, you know, really just through this year, we've put back more than three and a half million square feet of space. And if you look at the last four quarters, really it's almost four and a half million square feet. So the, the numbers are horrible. Now, as opposed to really CBD or, or et cetera, there really hasn't been much new construction out there. However, there are a couple little buildings, I say little, smaller, being developed in the suburbs, three buildings, and they're uh, roughly 365,000 feet, and they're just 42% leased. Obviously, they got under the wire before the capital markets really kind of fell apart. Um, you know, two of them have tenants. There's only one pure spec delivering, and that's up in, in, in Lincolnshire uh, right now, uh, 555 up to Kissick. So we think it's a really long road to full recovery out in the suburbs. Uh, you know, you may see an isolated build-a-suit for a tenant that's of a much larger size because dis despite the fact that there's global vacancy in that marketplace, there are really lack of very large corporate headquarters size blocks. And so you will see potential build-a-suit. You will see tenants acquiring sites and acquiring buildings in, in that regard. Again, the, the, the numbers all look the same in the burbs, although they're higher. We're a little bit lower than uh, uh, Rick's number on vacancy altogether. There are some sub-markets that are absolutely horrible. And, but believe it or not, again, uh, you're looking at this chart, they're not as high as they were in their worst history. Uh, they're maybe directionally going in that direction, but Schaumburg has been higher, O'Hare has been higher, East-West market has been worse than it is today, and the northern suburbs are probably the outlier in it where they're still if you will, it's the smallest of the sub-markets. It's still a reasonable level of vacancy out there. So, um, you know, it's not all lost, but I will tell you it's going to be a long time before you see wholesale building again in the suburbs, and it'll be uh, a long time before you get some type of equalization in the uh, fundamentals. That's kind of the end of my... Okay. Just one quick question. This is a, a Chicago-centric panel, but, is there, uh, but you all both work on a broader basis than just Chicago. Is there anything significantly different that you would say about any of the other major markets in the U.S.? Was the one that's doing really great or average, or you know, is it all kind of the same story across the country? Washington. Yeah. Washington. I agree. Yep. Yeah. Washington. Yeah, Washington. In fact, uh, um, we've acquired two buildings in D.C. on the premise of big government, and it is growing there. We're looking at a third, uh, and we've just taken our management in-house of the buildings we've acquired there. So we, we're making a bet on that market. So Mainly federal, because federal government space. Federal market yeah, driven. Support. All the investors are flocking to that environment. Uh, you can call, uh, you know, if you're, you call a lender when you're looking at a building to acquire, the lenders are equal, you know, very interested in talking to you. Uh, if you call with that same property size, same dynamics for suburban Chicago, they'll hang up on you. Chris, do you hang up on people? No, I'm calling the same guys these guys are calling. Um, you know, Cohen Financial is a, a real estate financial services provider, and our clients are generally investors and developers of real estate, um, whether we're raising equity or debt capital for them to go buy or develop, or whether we're servicing loans on their behalf, or whether we're helping them uh, interface with their lenders and servicers and special servicers when it comes to renegotiating uh, existing debt positions with lenders. That's kind of what we're doing right now. But I, I got to say, it's been a while since I've been the most optimistic guy on a panel. And this is kind of refreshing. It's, it's, you know, I don't feel so out there anymore. So that's good. So I, I hope I can hold true to that and, be, and stay optimistic. I think the one thing that people ask me nowadays is, where are we? What's going on out there right now? And more so, what's the future look like? Because nobody has any idea what this is going to be uh, going forward after, after we do get out of this. Um, 
And in order to, to really frame those two questions, I think it's important to look back a little bit farther than 2007 um, to kind of where this all started. And I'm going to go really fast through this, but um, in a nutshell, in 1991, when the RC, RTC uh, initiated securitization for commercial real estate, um, that planted the seeds for the boom that we all experienced here over the last almost 20 years. In 2001, after we had some issues in the, in the U.S. here, obviously, um, the federal government came in and really started uh, lowering the cost of capital, uh, reducing interest rates, and the feeding started. Securitization, liquidity that it brought, plus the low cost of capital created an absolute real, commercial real estate frenzy that we all benefited from. Um, the bad part about that is it leads to a bubble, and the bubble popped. And in our, in our mind, the bubble popped in February of 2007. And nobody else really saw this because on the product side, there was a lag. But in February of 2007, the residential RMBS markets crashed and people started to have doubts as to really what was the value of the finance market uh, in the world. Uh, let me go through a real quick timeline here. Feb 07, the resi market collapsed. Fall of 07, the CMBS commercial mortgage-backed securities market seized up. Spring of 08, Bear Stearns went down. Fall of 08, Lehman Plus went down. At that point, the capital markets seized up all over the world. Not just mortgages, everything seized up. Uh, then we had a period from fall of 08 to fall of 09, which we're all kind of coming out of right now, uh, where everyone was really out of the market on the money side of things. Um, the banks were always in. They're pulling out. Life companies went out almost immediately. CMBS, uh, securitized conduit lenders, were out immediately. Um, and uh, in steps the U.S. government. They start buying companies, and they start uh, giving money away to, to multifamily owners. This is leading into where are we right now. Um, there is a significant disconnect still between buyers and sellers in the marketplace. Because of that, we're seeing very little transactional activity. Um, you know, all of us are in businesses of doing real estate deals. How do you find business if there's no buying and selling going on? So they're starting to form um, some ways to access assets that are outside of the normal buying and selling channels. And it mostly focuses on uh, looking at the notes and looking at the finance market and, and trying to get your basis reduced on buildings that you own. Um, as far as where is the capital right now, uh, the banks have been a big fill for when the CMBS uh, lenders left the market and the life company guys stepped out. The banks filled that void pretty well. The banks are now pulling out. The FDIC has ramped up its efforts to close banks. We've all seen big closures here in Chicago. There's more to come. Somebody said, you know, two to 300 banks by the early part of next year and 1,000 over the next few years. That's really depressing. But what it does do is it allows the market to flush itself and it allows capital to come in. We view capital as water. And if there's a low point with, uh, with, with no obstructions, the water will fill the void. And that's what really needs to happen here. Uh, the life companies, amazingly, in our, we have a weekly meeting in our Chicago office here, and we do an informal survey of 45 capital providers uh, that we work with around the country. And we rate them every single week. We rate them red, yellow, or green. Red means they're out of business. Yellow means they tell you they're in business, but they're really not in business. And green means they're actually trying to do deals. In the last month or so, uh, most of that list has gone to green, which is amazing to us. People want to do deals. There's, there's capital allocated. The life companies have, have allocated money for next year, and it's, it's encouraging. Now, you're going to ask, well, what are they willing to do? And that's really where the question is, because nobody right now is willing to take any risk at all. Everybody is valuing current cash flow and the stability of that cash flow. And anytime you have a disruption coming, or if you have some lease up, uh, it's really going to be a problem. Uh, another group that's filled the void, and I don't know how much this applies to this group, but uh, the, the agencies have stepped in big time. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and HUD. Uh, it, it, it's really become two worlds. Apartment owners and apartment finance and commercial real estate finance. You can borrow money on apartments right now from any of these three agencies at 5 to 5.5%, 80% 5 loan-to-value, 30-year amortization, uh, it's amazing. It's just like it used to be. And what you've seen here is the cap rates on apartments have stayed low, and it's all being driven by the finance markets. And when you look on the commercial side, uh, not quite the same story. Everybody wants to do 60 to 65% leverage off of their value 
uh, rates are anywhere from 6.5 to 7.5. Uh, everybody wants amortization, and you're going to see constants in the 9 to 11 to 12 percent range. Try to make those numbers work when you're, you're buying a piece of real estate at a seller's numbers. It's just not happening. Um, When's the optimistic part? <laughs> you know, honestly, the optimistic part is in the springtime, um, you know, you'd call, if you talk about getting hung up on, you'd call a, a life company and they'd hang up on you. They're, they I shrugged. think it's the green part. Oh, it's the green, the green it's the part, green, that's yeah. right. I didn't say what tone of green. <laughs> it's, you know. Chris, how big a loans are we talking about? Is there some ceiling? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of liquidity in the, um, the mid-size loans. Uh, so if you're talking about anything up to $30, $35 million, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of players in that market. Anytime you get over that number, uh, people start falling off pretty quick. Uh, there's a few banks, investment banks, that'll play in that area, and there's probably three or four life companies that'll play in that area right now. So that's, that's still a little bit tough. From your side to club those deals to get, obviously that precludes almost all of downtown right. office buildings. So are these guys still willing to club deals? Yeah. Nobody wants to club because nobody, want, nobody trusts their, their uh, partner. And this is exactly what happened with the banks when the LIBOR rates shot up uh, you know, a year and a half ago. You know, LIBOR is the cost that banks lending back and forth to each other based uh, over in London. And nobody trusted that they would get paid back, even the other banks. So nobody really wants to be in a club deal because they lose control and they, they really don't trust their partners at all. It's that, that can, part's can you a define club deal for the audience? A club deal is really uh, where a, um, a bank or a lender will come in and lead, um, but they will bring in other financial companies to help them. So on a $200 million deal, the lead may do a $50 million chunk, and then you may bring in four or five other banks that will do 10 to 20 or $30 million chunks. But they all have to get along, and negotiating the... A uh, relationship between the five or six banks is a daunting task. You guys have done those. It's very painful. So uh, coming back to what is financeable nowadays, I mean, I think if you have good real estate, you have cash flow, um, you have a, a, an understandable uh, pro forma that doesn't have a lot of bumps in it, I think you can finance those deals. You're going to need equity. Um, the equity money is very expensive out there right now. And again, that's going to preclude things from happening. How do you find deals that can pay the equity returns? Um, you're certainly not going to get them in the buy-sell market. We have clients out looking at buying notes uh, from third parties, which is an interesting uh, new adventure here. And um, more importantly, uh, we believe that the basis has to be reduced in a lot of the real estate uh, in the country. The deleveraging has to start. And how do you really do that? And we've uh, formed a group in the spring of this year um, with a fellow that used to work at Citibank uh, that we call our debt advisory group, and it's really helping real estate clients uh, prepare to go back to their lender and, uh, and have a loan modification to some degree. That can be a, a buyback of a note, that can be a, a, um, an extension, that can be a modification of loan terms, or it can be a reduction in principal. And those are, the, those are the ways that people are accessing real estate. We basically advise our clients to look at your own portfolio and go and see what you can buy back in your own portfolio before you go out into the market and try to buy third party. Now you need three things in order to do that. First of all, you need to be a good operator. The lender's got to have confidence that you are the best group to get that deal done. Secondly, you need new equity because nobody's going to talk to you if you don't come to the table with something. The third thing, you need to make a strong case. And one thing that we've been working with clients on is helping them make their case, preparing the case so when we go to the special servicer, um, we are providing them a solution and making it a real easy decision for them. What's the uh, required equity return nowadays? No, you know, basically people are, are saying 20. 20. And if you insert risk into that equation, that number goes up pretty quickly. I think, I think the, the money that's been raised, and there's plenty of it, uh, has all been raised uh, to deliver a 20 return. What, what hasn't been discussed is that that money is really not ready to take the risk that's necessary to get a 20% return. So we're working on, an, on a note buyback up in Michigan right now, um, and in, nobody will talk to us unless we can show that it's a, into the 30s easily uh, on, on good real estate with not a lot of risk, just because of the market risk there. So you know, how do you get a 20? You have to find a way to, to buy stuff at a reduced basis, uh, and you have to show a way that, to carry it. And those deals aren't out there right now. And, uh, but but, but you know, there, there are two things that could happen. The, the, the owners of real estate could reduce their expectations. And that seems to be what you 
refer to as the trigger point to get things going again. The other thing that could happen is the capital sources could lower their expectations to maybe a 15 or an 18. Do you right. see that possibly happening? Yeah, I think, I think we see that. I think what has happened, the, the money has been raised on a 20. So, you know, they've yeah, all gone off and got the yes, capital yeah. to commit to them uh, with the promise that they'll deliver a 20. Um, so really what's going to happen there is that money is going to leave. They're going to have to re-raise uh, re capital at the lower expectations. We've seen a lot of the equity funds out there uh, in exchange for taking a lower return really slide down into the debt position and to start to do mezzanine financing and in a lot of cases some you know, creative first mortgage financing where they're willing to do deals in the 11 to 12 percent range slide up into the 80 85 percent leverage sector and then you've got to come in with the you know 15 to 25 percent equity slug uh, and take really most of the risk. Okay. So, so what's it going to take to get things going again? Is it going to be a slow trickle or is, is one day a, a big transaction going to happen that's going to set pricing and everybody's going to jump into the marketplace? No, I don't, I don't know that that's the case because, you know, there, these aberration deals that we've seen, we saw the deal here on Madison, um, that was an aberration and certainly everybody knows about the big deal in D.C. Um, that set records for dollar per foot sales. That, that's an aberration. I don't think that's going to set anybody's expectations. Um, but, you know, there, there is money raised. People want to put money out. And I think as soon as, as soon as basis comes down to the point where guys will come in uh, and invest with a, with a good deal, with low risk, I think capital will start to bend and come in. But it's certainly not going to come in on development deals. It's certainly not going to come in on uh, value-add deals. Um, and anything that has bumps in, in a cash flow going forward is going to be very difficult to finance. You're going to end up with a bridge lender paying 12 to 15%, and you, just, you need to buy the deal right in order to make that work. A lot of our audience are either corporate owners or advisors to corporations. Can you comment on the sale leaseback market and some of the other techniques that might be available to corporate ownership? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a good question. It, you know, I, we've done a ton of net lease business over the years. And um, you know, forever, it was 10-year leases are, are the gold standard, if you will. And uh, that's gone now. I think you know, anyone that's looking to do, a, to do a long deal, 15 years is the benchmark now in order to, to attract any debt capital. Um, and there are groups out there that are raising money to go off and do sale leasebacks. And you know, it, the more and more as companies look, are stretched, they're gonna look to, to put their money back into their business and not really be a real estate owner. There are, there are groups that can easily step in and help you with that. Uh, you just need to make sure you get connected to the right people. And, and is it completely tied to tenant credit? So if I'm a great tenant in Pierre, North Dakota, can I get a sale lease back, or do I have to be in a market? You've got to be a pretty good tenant in Pierre, <laughs> Dakota. But, um, you know, where's, what's good credit nowadays? You know, I think that's the question that a lot of people are struggling is Everybody looked to the agencies to do, to do ratings, and the agencies lost all the credibility when all of the, you know, the structured finance models start to break. Um, so really, what's an A credit? Um, life companies historically have looked at credit not from a rating standpoint, but from really a good company, they look at market share, they look at who their clients are, and they will make bets on single tenant deals, even owner-occupied deals, to strong companies that have good balance sheets, good client base, and a, and a strong history. Okay, thanks. Were you done with your... Okay. Uh, if anybody has any questions from the audience, just raise your hand. I'll carry on until, until that happens. Uh, if, if I'm a tenant, uh, either, I mean, I, I, I'm going to ask this question two ways. One, if I'm a tenant looking for a new lease, what due diligence can I do on a landlord, and what are the things I need to look for for uh, landlord-related risks? And then secondly, if I'm a, a tenant in the middle of a lease, and I've got an undercapitalized landlord, is there anything that I could do to uh, you know, manage my risk related to that? I guess anybody wants to respond to that. Well, I, I can tell you what, what we're doing and, and most of our competitors are doing. When, when, uh, when Lehman imploded, we hired a handful of their uh, real estate investment banker guys that were debt, debt specialists. And so what we spend time doing with each of our clients and prospects, and we, you know, we're scrubbing all of Metropolitan Chicago and getting you know, our arms around everything that we possibly can and peeling back those onions and, and, and looking, you know, is this a single asset debt? Is this in the CMBS market? You know, what can we get our hands on so that we can advise our clients to, to, to be sensitive to that in terms of building selections or, or in terms of the building that they're already in? Um, in terms of what's happening in the middle of the lease, 
it's really a case-by-case -case situation. We've got clients that are sitting in, in buildings that have uh, CMBS loans come and due in the next 24 months, and those buildings are zombies. They're, they're toast. They're not, you know, the, the, it, it, those buildings coming back to health would, would be a miracle. But for them, you know, they're, they're probably better waiting and waiting for the process to unfold and letting it flush through the system. But are you seeing things like deferred maintenance, you know, delayed oh, yeah. improvements, oh, you know, yeah, things yeah, that yeah, affect yeah. the tenant yeah, experience? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, we're, uh, <laughs> without naming names, the, uh, you know, there are a handful of landlords in Chicago, Buck is not one of them, um, who are in precarious positions, who are certainly dialing back on, on their services, uh, you know, we're, we're starting to, you know, people are asking about lease audits now, especially with those landlords that, uh, you know, are a, either A, in trouble or B, are showing, you know, visible signs of stress through, through reduced services. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that answers your question just, directly, but that's... It just sounds like there's nothing really you can do about it. You gotta, you, there's, there's no mechanism to go back to the landlord to... Yeah, or you can file for bankruptcy. A lot of people situation. did that. As far as due diligence on your landlord, I think you know you could take a, a page out of a lender book. Most of the banks nowadays are um, not just looking at a, a borrower's balance sheet and liquidity and net worth, but they're also looking at that borrower's global cash flow, if you will, which is really not just a list of everything that that landlord owns, um, but who is it, what does that real estate look like that the landlord owns? What, is the, what does that rent roll look like in those buildings that the landlord owns? And, and how are those deals capitalized? Is this the landlord that has gone off and, and borrowed to the hilts from CMBS and really has no real equity in the deal and has no room to move? Or is this a big institution that is either sitting all cash or is sitting in a low leverage position with a lot of ability to go in and make deals? Yeah. Um, those are questions you need to ask yeah. uh, to your landlord or to your broker. Yeah, no question. It's not just at, at a building level or, or local market level, you really do have to you know, go through all the available public records, the publicly traded organizations where you can get a lot of this information and really do the models yourself right. and say, here's your real overall risk within this, you know, with this particular landlord. Mm -hmm. So Bill, when you're leasing out your buildings, are you seeing the tenants and their representatives right. asking a lot of different and more detailed questions? It's on everybody's RFP. Uh, it's a discussion at the table. Um, you know, really our lenders as we pursue tenants, same thing. We're going and we're meeting. The lenders are very active. They want to know how the strength of our tenants are too. You know, we talked sure. about that. But yeah, there's no question. We're being asked. Um, uh, they want to know. They, they want to understand our fund, our fund size, our our fund uh, commitments, and uh, you know who our other capital partners are. They want to understand our loan. You know, if they're smart, it's all public record. They can go find probably most of this. So um, people are doing that, and uh, you know, it's. Uh, you know, we're fortunate that we're in good position. We're low leverage guys anyway. So, you know, we're using it as a selling point, frankly, about being able to deliver, being able to capture that right type of tenant. So it's, uh, it's unique and, you know, hopefully we see opportunities on it, but uh, it's gonna take a while to flush out. There's no mm -hmm. question. We've got our first question from the audience. Yeah, I wanted to ask you Can guys. You say who you are? Yeah, where Tom, you're from? Tom Silva with the Alter Group. Um, I wanted to ask you guys to comment a little bit about inflation. Um, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't think that it isn't coming. And from a, a macroeconomic standpoint, I think massive amounts of government spending combined with the fact that I think a lot of the foreign investors are going to be asking for higher yields in order to buy our T-bills is going to create an inflationary environment. And with um, $1.2 in, in loan rollovers coming in the next three years, I'm wondering what we should look at in terms of loan constants and in terms of lease rates, uh, even for people who can get modifications for three or four years. The only comment that I'll make, and I'm not a capital markets expert, but I think actually rates and rents are going to hold up because I think the capital structure is going to demand it. And uh, so there's going to be some type of a stability on, you know, people are going to rent office space on what it really costs to manufacture and to finance, or to buy and to hold. And there'll always be situations where somebody's in a lower basis than another, but I think there is going to be in that top tier office space, I think it's gonna be really tied very closely to the cost of capital 
and costs of construction, which there might not be a lot of new construction, but I think it's going to be very pure. I don't, you know, inflation is definitely something we're looking at, but I, I you know, in the same token, you're, I, rent has to be paid in order to service it. People are still going to need office space, you know, so. Yeah, I, I have very little expertise to answer some of that question. My world is in a deflationary mode, so, you know, my, my clients are paying less for, you know, similar product or they're paying equal for better product. Uh, in terms of the other questions, the, the guys to my right are better suited to answer that question. Yeah, I would think just, you know, looking at uh, how, how investors underwrote their own deals historically versus how you're going to need to underwrite them going forward, um, you know, you, a couple things to watch. One is your exit cap rate. Don't expect that you're going to sell where you're buying. Um, you really have to create your value through an improvement in NOI as opposed to betting on a uh, compression of cap rates going forward. And the second thing as far as loan constants, a lot of people used an interest-only loan constant historically, uh, even if it was only for a few years. Don't perform a, an interest-only deal unless you're at a real low leverage point, you know, like 50%. Um, you know, as far as where you, uh, nobody knows where interest rates are going, you know, but if you, if you perform a 25-year AM on a, you know, 7 or 8% rate, that's probably what you should be doing. Now, are you projecting, I'm curious about that statement on cap rates, are you projecting that cap rates are going to not go back to the close to the levels yeah. they were? Yes. Or are you just underwriting things, that, you know, so you're... Well, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm in the capital side, so I, I tend to look at things as how, how, I'm trying to relate how capital will underwrite its financing, mm -hmm. as opposed to an owner who may underwrite differently, which is fine, but when you're out trying to finance something and attract equity and attract debt capital, uh, you need to have a realistic set of assumptions that are sellable so you don't lose credibility going in to see these guys. Okay. We've still got uh, the microphone roaming if anybody has any questions. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about uh, a, a coming change in, or likely change in the accounting rules, which will basically eliminate operating leases and will force any lease, no matter how long, to be put on balance sheets. Uh, are you seeing your tenants uh, addressing that now in anticipation of the likely change, and if so, what are they doing, and how will it impact the types of leases they sign, the durations, you know, things along those lines? I'll give you a quick answer to that, which is yes, people are discussing it. We debate about it in our office whether it is or is not real, and quite honestly, you know, our clients are telling us how much money can you save me and how fast can you do it. So, you know, we're just not at a point where you know, that's that, at least in, in, in the client base that I work with, that, okay. that that's a, a, a material discussion at this point. It, there's, there's too much other fear. Bill, about... Yeah, any, I mean, are people, people are just beginning to talk about it, just beginning to educate themselves about it. I mean, that's a, it will really change the way real estate is owned and operated in this country um, if that passes. And, I, you know, I don't know. Skeptics say that it's not going to pass. Okay. Nothing from the audience? All right, well, I'll, I'll keep going. Oh, did I? Thank you. There we go. David, David Roberts with Jones Lang LaSalle. I have a question for the three panelists. How are you diversifying your businesses to respond to a different economic climate over the next few years? What are you doing differently? Um, well, uh, you know, our, our platform is very much focused on, uh, I think, what you guys call occupier services in your vernacular. Um, you know, we, we, have, we have done what we feel we need to do and we should do for the moment based on, you know, what the environment is. And everybody, everybody in this room is uh, probably looking at some sort of curtailed investment uh, in the short run. Uh, in terms of what's keeping us busy and what we're focusing our practice on, that's a bit different now than it has been in the past. So, you know, I, I keep hammering this bankruptcy thing. You know, we're busy with bankruptcy. We're busy doing government work. We're busy working in sectors that are busy now. And that's really what we're focusing on. Which of our clients have immediate needs and which ones need, you know, immediate attention in the triage. Uh, and for now, that's what we're really focusing on. You know, our business, uh, if you look back at it, might say it was a great move. We were really smart to go to the Middle East and begin our practice over there. And looks, you know, as that business ramps up, our business here is cycling back a little bit today. But, you know, really that was just, uh, 
you know, something we've been pursuing for over 15 years, so it just came in at the right time for us. But uh, candidly, you know, since we're moving away from a development mode and a lot of our uh, you know, project management people are coming off of projects that are finishing, really our mode is to continue to pursue development, but rather speculative or you know, demand-driven. It's really more towards uh, you know, government, municipal service sectors and into select markets where maybe we haven't ventured before. Uh, you know, uh, there is still financing out there for uh, multifamily. Uh, we mentioned that that's a little bit higher, so we're looking at a, a high-rise apartment building in, in uh, downtown Philadelphia, of all places, but a uh, good market there, actually. So we're looking into those different property types, different markets that may be not experiencing the same big bumps in the office sector right now. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's an all-hands-on-deck effort, and, uh, uh, you know, I think, the, again, the trend with uh, government spending and municipalities and stimulus plans, you know, there's business there, and uh, those sectors are growing, so. And I think our business historically has been, you know, 90% of our revenue has come from transactional revenue. And uh, we've always carried a 5 to $6 billion loan servicing portfolio. Um, we've completely revamped our business and now really have three businesses. We're an advisor, so we're, we have a debt advisory business. Um, we, we're growing our loan servicing portfolio. We're going to be a rated special servicer, so there's business coming off of that. Um, to the point where at the beginning of 2010, we'll probably be f only 50% transaction revenue and, and the other 50 will come from loan servicing, special servicing, debt advisory work. Uh, and we'll probably have a principal arm as well at some point where we're going to raise some money and go try to take advantage of some of the opportunities that are going to be coming. Michelle? Michelle Meyer, Oracle. My question is, given what's happening in the office sector, if you consult your crystal ball, when do you see things turning around and being a little bit more favorable for the landlords versus the tenants? <laughs> Never. <laughs> <laughs> Bill? You know, it's, uh, I think it's 100% you know, linked to really drop job growth. Uh, I mean, we're higher than the national average right now, I think, in Chicago, you know, speaking locally. But, uh, uh, you know, it's got a long way to go, you know, I mean, you know, maybe it's less worse than it was. It's trending. You know, we're losing less jobs than we were a year ago. And every quarter it's kind of moved in that direction. But it has to cross over for as long as it's been down before we're going to see the effect of it. So if it's been down six quarters, seven quarters, it might take seven quarters again to get to that point and then another seven before we're to the point where we're really growing again. So, and it might grow differently, you know. So... You know, you're in the technology business, you know, you might tell us what's the next widget that's going to drive all this growth, so. And, and, and you look at it from supply and demand side, which is partially, it, it is jobs. Nothing's going to happen until the job market turns. But let's look at the supply side, too. Guess what? Nothing's going to get built that's right. for a while, okay? So when the, when the demand starts to come back, it's going to take a long time before the building market catches back up to absorb some of that. At that, you know, somewhere in there is when it's going to flip and your landlord's going to have the leverage again. So you got to remember, Chicago, if you look back historically, uh, this market has not been a real rent growth market. You know, we've had a little bit of a nudge in the brand spanking new buildings in terms of effective rents and face rents. But if you go back over 20 years, what you'll see is the tenant favored markets last three and a half to four and a half years, and those moments when the market changes, and Bill's right, when it changes, it changes fast, it lasts about a year and a half. You know, we're not an island. We're, you know, if you ask the folks from New York, and maybe there are some that are here, we're, we're, we're a prairie. There's still plenty of sites. This is a development-happy environment. Uh, you know, we're doing deals in buildings that were built in the late 80s at the same rents that we did deals in those buildings in the late 80s. Now. You know, this is, this is the nature of Chicago. We had a moment, we had a huge run-up, and now we're kind of going back to where we've been in the past. And yes, the trophy quality buildings live in a different environment. The balance of the Class A and Class B market, they are what we thought they were. And, and, and we're right back where we were 20 years ago. Same net rents, even concessions higher. So it may improve, we don't know when, but Rest assured, in Chicago, we'll be back to where we were before. Every once in a while, I see in the economic uh, press the prospects of a jobless recovery. 
have uh, any of your organizations thought through the implications of that? And if so, you know, how are you planning for that uh, potential eventuality other than just shutting down? Boy, I'm not sure how to answer that. <laughs> I, don't I mean, that goes uh, back. That goes back to the crystal ball, which I right. think is as murky as it's ever been. Right. Uh, you know, everybody that's still sitting at a desk going to work uh, is working harder than they than they have. I know people in our industry are working harder than they have for less return. Um, how I, come I think that's just keep going up. Then <laughs> that's your fault. But we thank you. Um, <laughs> the you know, I think productivity is going to have to continue to ratchet up. Um, but, I, you know, the jobless recovery, I, I, I'm not sure how to define that. I mean, I know what it means on its face, but I don't really, I, I don't know how to answer that question in, in technical terms. It's, okay. yeah. I think historically you looked at what drove the jobless recoveries is, is people's access to capital that would fuel consumer spending that will keep the economy going. And I'm not sure that that exists anymore. I think people, you know, the value of everybody was borrowing from their homes, uh, that value is gone. You can't go grab money out of your house anymore to go buy a car or a vacation anymore. And it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, if there is a jobless recovery, where is the capital going to come from? Uh, I don't know how that's going to work. Okay. Anything else? We've got one back there. Hey, Rick. Bill Canopiotis. Um, what's happening with your fee structure? Talk to us about brokerage commission structure going forward. A lot of people in this room, fees are getting crushed down to almost zero at the contractor level. Architects are feeling it. We're all feeling it on the service side. What are you doing or what are you seeing or what do you envision the next five years on the brokerage commission structure to help aid in this recovery instead of uh, the big paychecks? What do you guys, what, what do you think the industry is going to do to help, <laughs> help us get out of this thing? Um, well, you know, I, I can speak for, for how we operate our business. Um, you know, everybody in this room knows how brokerage fees have traditionally been paid. I think the consumer of uh, corporate advisory tenant rep services is much more focused on performance-based compensation now, uh, and that's the way we really structure the vast majority of our agreements. So, um, I, you know, I'm not sure that answers your question, but, you know, in the basic blocking and tackling, you know, on the smaller deal side, Bill can probably give you a better answer on that. You know, Bill, um, you know, it's something we talk about all the time, and it's really a market-driven number for the most part, and uh, it shouldn't be the leading discussion point when it comes to making a deal, but it often is. Um, you know, just by way of example for those in the room, you know, downtown Chicago, the typical market rate for a commission is $1.25 per square foot per year of the lease term. And with that, often there are not deducts for free rent. You might have a two-year rent period, but the broker's still getting paid on that period. Um, so you will, you'll, that's a $12.50 fee on a 10-year lease. But the rents are, you know, for example, in our 155 North Wacker are in the low 30s net. We have to pay in the market, we have suburban properties, we're starting to get pressure to pay a dollar and a quarter uh, in the suburbs when our rents are anywhere from 12 to $18 a square foot. That's where we're feeling the pain. And it's in those markets where uh, really the rents don't support that high a percentage of a commission. And often in today's environment, the commission is really higher than really perhaps a capital package that may be going to a renewal tenant, et cetera. So it's, a, it's almost been treated as a cost of doing business. And Therefore, it hasn't gotten pressured, and you know, frankly, there's always one or two buildings that will offer an incentive or a bonus, and if you happen to be in a competitive situation for a tenant, to keep your own tenant or to acquire a new tenant, you've, you, you have to try to go to the market and, and meet that marketplace. So what are we doing uh, you know, as an industry? You know, really, we're just fighting each fire as we can. And, uh, you know, I, but there isn't much room for it to go higher. It certainly... Uh, is a challenge, but um, you know I don't also think it's going away either. So I don't yeah, know if that and, answers it. Yeah, and and you know in the traditional sense of the the kind of compensation structure Bill's talking about, metropolitan Chicago has always lagged. Los Angeles, New York, New Jersey, you know the compensation levels on traditional brokerage commissions in Chicago is you know far lower than some of those centers. So. But, okay. it, you know, but, but on that point, though, too, it, it is a, 
it's something the tenant, I know, is as aware of as much as the developer and the lender. And so really, you know, we treat it as a total package rather than an isolating factor because often today, from what I understand, the tenants are participating, you know, in that fee. So. Okay, unless there's another question, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, I want to thank each of our speakers today for uh, their contribution. And, and uh, is there anybody else? Uh, thank you all for coming. And uh, Dan, you can. Uh, yeah. Yes, thank you to our, our moderator and panelists, everybody, uh, for participating today. Uh, as I'd mentioned, uh, the next program is on January 14th. That'll be our, kind of our economic outlook. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if you happen to know, we, did, we do pod podcast all these on our website, so take a listen to the podcast from last January to find out how their forecast was, if it did fall in line with the expectations, and then we challenge them moving forward in January. So thanks. We encourage you to come out, and we will see you in uh, 2010. Fill out the surveys, and uh, that helps us to create our programs moving forward, and we thank you for uh, coming out. Thank you.